My agent called, he said he got some interest in my script. I'm glad I didn't tell him that I never finished it. I got my cast of characters and outline for the plot. I even got a famous classic case of writer's block. Get it out of my head. Welcome to On the Page. This is the podcast that answers all of your questions about the craft and business of screenwriting. My name is Pilar Alessandra, and I'm the instructor and script consultant here at On the Page. Joining me today is Londi Maduro. Hello, Londi. Hello. Thank, Thank you. you so much for having me. Oh, it is a pleasure, and it's about time. Londi Maduro has been the director and producer of short films, features, music videos, small business commercials, business tutorials, and documentaries since launching her production company, Blue Child Entertainment, in 2012. The first project she produced was I Can't Pretend, about domestic abuse. Next, she co-produced and starred in Shiro's, which made its way to Comic-Con and ended up as a contribution in Stanley's book, A Fan Life. She made her directorial debut shooting the infomercial for the book Faces I Have Seen, and her most fulfilling project to date is The Silent Killer, Prostate Cancer in the African American Community. She is also the proud leader of Women of Color Filmmakers, an organization that supports and provides motivational speakers and educational programs to female filmmakers as they pursue careers in film and television. And the last time I saw you, I got to be a guest speaker there. Yes, you did. And they loved you. <laughs> it's always fun to talk to to your group because also Londi is just like, you know, you, you ask the right questions. This is a talented bunch of women at that, you know, it's, it's very, I, I like your really sort of nuts and bolts, let's get it done kind of approach. Thank you. I, yeah. I really, really appreciate that. And that's actually what we're going to talk about a little bit with uh, with Londi today because she has directed and produced so many different kinds of materials. And um, I'm, I'm interested, first of all, in in the breadth of, of work that you do, everything mm-hmm. from short films to music videos to business tutorials. So, you know, as a producer, t- tell me about the kind of work Blue Child does, you know, because mm-hmm. s- sometimes you're a producer for hire, right? Correct. Yes. Often a producer for hire. And yes, we do tend to do a lot of small business things. But what I find is, um, you know, it really takes that creative brain to help the clients understand that this is a medium of entertainment still. You want people to be drawn to your product. So we have to present it in a way that's entertaining and pleasing. Otherwise, no one's going to come to your business. So I think my background in film has really helped me in the commercial business world because I'm able to bring that element of entertainment to my clients and get them comfortable. You know, a lot of times they're the stars in their own commercials and things. So it's like getting them comfortable in front of a teleprompter, in front of a camera, that kind of thing. You know, sometimes I'll do it for them. They're like, okay, can you just do it? Like, no, we're going to get you to do it so that your clients will come and visit you. So I think that's very much informed me as a producer. Um, It also, you know, sometimes when I write, it's hard to turn that producer's hat off because I'm often thinking about, okay, this is the budget. 
um, okay, how can I implement this? You know, I often get clients w- with what I say, um, uh, caviar dreams and Burger King budget. <laughs> so, you know, I know you want that explosion in your shorts, but can we do it with stock footage? Or <laughs> I know you saw them hopping from building to building as they chase each other through the, you know, through this awesome chasing, but can we keep it on the ground? Like just trying to get people to understand that a lot of my process as a producer is educating it's okay, how can we take this off audacious thing that you've written and make it in something that's bite-sized on an independent filmmaker's level, um, but still have that cinematic appeal that'll get you into that film festival or get that sales agent to want to buy, buy your project, you know? So a lot of what I do, I feel like is just kind of educating and looking at different creative ways to do the same thing that maybe they've written, both for my commercial clients and my film clients. I am... I, I just want to start from the, from scratch then. You know, <laughs> I'm a client. I've come to you and I've said, I really want you to produce this thing for me. And I have no money and I want to make it fabulous. Um, what would you begin with? What would you say to them? Okay, do you have this? Sure. So a lot of times I try to figure out, especially with my film clients, what the tone is. So, you know, if I'm producing and directing, I try to sit down with them and understand, okay, this is what I read from your script. I want to make sure that I'm on the same page with you, that I'm catching the tone of what you're doing. Now, if they're hiring another director, uh, it's my job to kind of keep that director, you know, because directors who aren't producers tend to want to go audacious. (laughs) So it's my job to see, okay, can we achieve this same look with maybe not using that? $50,000 camera? Can we use, you know, a camera that's maybe less expensive, but put a let to get that same feel later in post? Or can we, you know, frame it this way? Can we use these kind of lights that are maybe less expensive? Like my job is to see how can we match the tone and match what you want to do, but maybe keep that cost to a minimum so we can stay in your, I don't know, $20,000, $15,000 budget. You know what I mean? What kind of questions do you ask when you're trying to find the tone? Because a lot of people don't know how to articulate this. Sure. Yes, that's a great question. A lot of times I ask people, what is it that they like to watch? Because you may not realize what you're watching is the tone of something. For instance, uh, we actually just talked about this in our group the other night. We did a Finding Your uh, Footing as an indie director um, workshop. And one of the things I was telling them is, Um, Let's say you like the movie Seven. That's one of my favorite movies, right? And it's dark and gritty. You don't know what it is that you like about it, but a lot of what you may like, if you like movies like that, is high contrast. It feels like it's low lighting because everything's kind of dark and muddy. So how can we achieve that? How can we adjust our lights? Are we putting fills on them? Which you can get inexpensive, cheap gel fills on uh, Amazon for like $10, $15. You know what I mean? No matter what you're shooting with, if it's a DSLR or an awesome, you know, red cam or something like that. So just trying to show, ask them, okay, give me a movie that you feel like has the look you want to go for. Because then I can start breaking that down. And if they're not sure, watch a couple. What is it that you're, because I get that a lot. People will say, I want it to be bright and colorful and feel like bubble gum. Okay, 
So, <laughs> okay. Um, what feels like bubblegum to me might not feel like bubblegum to you. Are you talking hubba bubba? I know I'm dating myself. As well. <laughs> <laughs> like, what are we talking about? Show me a couple of different um, films or music videos that have that same vibe that you think you want. And then I can kind of deconstruct and put that together so we can make sure we get what you're looking for. Do you remember Cherry Hubba Bubba? Yes. That was that was my favorite. I like definitely. Like the flavor runs out pretty quickly, but for a while there it's just fabulous. Exactly. (laughs) I I love that you start with tone. I think I, I think that's so cool because it's all about mood and what emotion that mood invokes. How do you know all this stuff about like what fill and things like that? Like how could somebody educate themselves um, about the, the how when it comes to this kind of thing, or should they just hire you as a producer? Cause I, I think that would be probably the best way to go, but I'm just, just wondering. So for me, honestly, so I went to photography school. I used to be a model and an actress and I got sick of trying to remain a size two and uh, <laughs> starving myself. So I went to photography school. So I understood color, lighting, and composition. I would say if you don't want to take a photography class, YouTube is your friend. There Now, there are some, you know, crappy ones on there, of course, tutorials. But look for ones that focus more on cinematic things because they'll give you ideas for tone. They'll give you ideas for color. I would definitely say take a class or a workshop and start to understand what those things mean. You know, we often do, we do a lot, like you, Pilar, I do a lot of classes and workshops just trying to help independent filmmakers because they don't understand why their projects aren't looking cinematic. Like, what did I do wrong? I have my POV, I mean, my two wides and two POVs, like what's happening? So just trying to um, look for different things, you know, maybe play around with things, take a light. I I love... um, those lights at Home Depot, I call them bowl lights. You can get them for like five bucks. And then maybe buy a few different like clear gels that you can get on Amazon for like 10, 15 bucks and see how it affects something, even with your iPhone. How if I put this gel in, it's going to give me a different mood if it's blue versus if it's light blue versus if it's orange, like just kind of seeing. And what is it that you like when you see that? Play around with exposures on your, well, I don't know how much you can do on your phone, But if you have a a DSLR, just play around with these things and start to learn what it is that you're drawn to as a filmmaker. And I think that will help you. But you have to educate yourself. It's going to come by messing up a lot of things and and trying, basically. It's it's funny because even when I was in photography school, my teacher had told us, you know, I could teach you guys all these things. Uh, I can teach you lighting. I can teach you exposure and all that. But until you do it, you're not going to really comprehend. Right, right. And that's why you want to sort of learn with smaller, uh, short form content and mm-hmm. work your way up, right? Make your own mistakes. Exactly. Don't don't make everything just, just so that the world can see it yet. Now, exactly. I'm, I'm back to being your client, okay? And you asked uh-huh. me what tone I'm interested in. Um, what would be the next thing that you would ask Sure. So the next thing I would ask is, um, after we get to the tone of it, kind of what exactly is it 
that you want to sell. Because sometimes people watch other commercials and they think, oh, I just want, I want a commercial that looks like this. Okay, but what is your product? Like if you are a business client, what is your product? Are we selling your service and you? Are we selling the product itself? Because there's a huge difference, you know? And even with my filmmaking clients, what is it that you're trying to convey? So now we have the tone, but how is it that you want this story told? Because as we know as filmmakers, there's a lot of different ways and there's no wrong way to tell a, a story visually. It's how do you want to tell it? Are you seeing things where it feels like we're in it the whole time? We're always in it. Like the, the audience is with you. They're part, they're almost like a character. So that would mean we need everything to be mostly handheld, right? Because that's how you feel like you're in it. Um, do you want the audience to feel like they're just a, an observer in everything that happens in these people's world? So therefore, we might do a lot of dolly shots or a lot of, you know, slow moving, panning in and out. So we're kind of like peering into this character's world. So it's first kind of trying to feel what they want to convey and then making sure that if I'm not the director, that the director's on page with that and that the director is in agreement. Cause I can't tell you how many times <laughs> the writer and the director are not in agreement. On what, 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 what a shock. <laughs> right. So just try because, and that's important as a producer to know, because that depends on what kind of gear we have to get. You know what I mean? So, you know, you can't show up at set and say, Oh, here's my shot list. And we're like, wait a minute, you got a jib shot, a dolly shot. Like, we didn't get that kit for that. So now we have to improvise. So these conversations are super, super, super important in pre-production to make sure that everyone's on the same page. And I think because I am a writer, director, producer, I probably spend a lot more time on that. I try to get the director to slow down. The project I just worked on in December, I was constantly trying to get the director. I was her first AD, but I was constantly trying to get her to slow down. So because she was excited to shoot, okay, but how are we going to, I mean, she had this huge fight scene with two police, well, it wasn't huge, but it was huge because there were two police officers and a young woman who were taking her down. So there's safety issues there uh. and there's angles. And so it's like, okay, we need to spend a lot of time blocking this, this out to make sure one, the young lady's safe with these two men manhandling her mm -hmm. and that we're getting the angles that you want. That takes time. Cause she was like, Oh, we got it. No, we don't. Right. Right. <laughs> no, we don't. So just trying to help them kind of slow down. And then I was also a producer on that. So making sure that we had the right equipment that the DP was um, understanding, okay, this is how we're going to shoot this. Cause sometimes you have DPs who kind of want to do their own thing. And they're like, yeah, yeah, I got it. No. Did you hear what the director said, though? Uh -huh. Right. <laughs> you know, like she's saying this. Are you are you prepared to do that? Are you prepared to go handheld and put on that vest and wear it for the next two hours while we get this scene? You know, so just trying to make sure everyone's happy and that we're getting what it is that you envision. So if you don't, you know, a lot of times you're not going to know that you want it handheld. You just know I want to feel like I'm in it. Right, right, right. Now, so, when you say, you know, I want to feel like a minute and, and so this is this is your point of view with the story and, and how, how you're seeing the story told, do people need also an understanding of story overall as far as beginning, middle and end, even in short form projects? Yes, because <laughs> a lot of times they go in with, oh, it, and this scene, this is what I want for this scene. Okay. 
but is that pushing the story forward? Kind of like you always talk about with uh, writing, right? Mm -hmm. It's the same thing with filmmaking, especially when, you know, we have uh, directors who are learning all these cool, awesome camera angles. Uh, Okay, now I've got a Dutch tilt and a contra zoom and a whip pan and I want all these in there. Okay, great. But does that push the story forward? Is it going to make sense in the context of what you're trying to um, convey? Are you revealing information about your characters by doing this shot? So just like with writing, you can put a whole bunch of stuff because it sounds good. Ooh, and this character sounds witty and this is awesome. It can be the same thing if you put too much camera blocking and too much camera movement. Okay, but that didn't tell us anything. You didn't reveal anything about your characters. It kind of distracted from what was being said. We're not clear understanding if this is pushing it forward. I feel a little confused because it's amazing how much audiences have been trained to know things by seeing colors and tones and camera movement that they don't know. They know that something's going to happen, but they don't know what, right? A lot of that comes through not just the story. It's the combination of the story and the camera movement and the tone. Wow. Wow. How That's that's so interesting. Also, I would imagine that if you're, if you're covering all these things just because they're cool shots, you're slowing down your day and you're yes. spending your budget. And then yes. you, you ran out before you could actually have the scenes that cover your story. So, yes. you know, you don't really have time to, to put in all the, that arty stuff, but you can make the things that are relevant artistic anyway, like right. you said, with, 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 the, the shots that you just talked about. You right. Know. And, and, you know, my job as a producer, usually on set, and if I'm, you know, helping or first aiding is, okay, so we're not going to make it our day if we do these 45 shots you got listed for this one scene. So how can we combine some of this? Because how can we still tell this with, okay, if you really are married to that, but I've got to have that Dutch tilt shot in there. Okay, so we'll keep that. But how can we combine some of these other things? Can we maybe do a rack focus so that way we don't have to do a whole new camera setup for an intercut shot? You know, like that kind of thing. Like just trying to get them to understand how can we kind of economize everything so that we're not, as you said, uh, wasting the day. And just trying to make sure that we're still creatively telling a beautiful uh, visual story. And sometimes that can get convoluted very quickly if you don't plan out properly, you know. Now, part of what you do um, is also encourage filmmakers to direct. And so there's the producing part of you that just said, okay, let's let's have a plan here, right? <laughs> but also you you have have also been a director yourself and now are encouraging other people to do it. And I love that because especially with, with writers, so many people are scared to direct their own stuff. Um, if you are writing features, why not learn how to direct as well? You know, like, right. wouldn't you like that kind of control? Um, yes. So uh, what are some of the things that you start with when you are helping somebody just stick their toe in the water? of thinking about being a director? Sure. Well, I would say the first thing is, honestly, it's 
helping build their confidence because really it's about confidence and educating them on kind of the basics of shots and things like that. Because a lot of times, especially as female directors, we can feel intimidated because we're not always the most loved director on set. You know, you walk in as a woman and you're kind of the one who's the boss. And although times are a changing, they're not a changing that fast, you know? So I can't tell you how many times I've dealt with that on set. Um, so if you're confident, then you can let that roll off your back. You know, if you're dealing with, you know, some crew members who are struggling with the fact that you're the one giving orders that day. So the first thing is just to make sure they're confident in their shots and they're, and if they don't know all the names of the shots, that's fine. They're confident in their vision. I remember my very first big um, directing project. I was directing something in Atlanta. I had 80 cast and crew, and I was terrified. But I didn't want them to know I was terrified. But I was terrified. I was being flown in to direct this project. And I remember being on set, and I knew I wanted uh, a shot in the bathroom, and I didn't want any audio because I wanted to. I had some dramatic things I was planning to do in post. I didn't know the term. So I was telling the DP, yeah, I, I want it shot like this and I don't want any audio and I want us over the shoulder in the mirror. And he's like, so are you saying you want an MOS? Does that mean no sound? If that means no sound, then that's what I want. It's <laughs> <laughs> like, yes, that's what that means. Okay. It's like, but it, it, you know, we laughed about it later, but I was very clear on what I wanted and it, I didn't have anyone come in and make suggestions. And I was like, oh, well, maybe that. Or, oh, or maybe that. Like, I was so confident in how I wanted to shoot it, even if I didn't know all the terminology. Sure. Right? So the first step is making sure that they are confident, that they are clear on how they want to visually tell the story. And then the rest will come. I think, I think that goes back to tone right? Mm -hmm. It goes, it goes back to how do you see it? How do you want people to feel when they're watching it? And, you know, I have to say, I've been learning on the job with this podcast ever since, since we started. Um, And I felt so dumb when I had a bunch of female directors on and I was like, okay, so tell everybody what camera to get. And they all looked at me like, you know, clearly you don't understand what directing is. Because I thought too, like, you know, again, you know, I, I'm on the writing side of it. And I thought, right. oh, it's all about those shots, but it's not. It's mm-hmm. about vision. It's about mm-hmm. telling the story, which is why the director has so much power in the screenwriting world. Because mm-hmm. in, I'm, I'm sorry, in the feature world, because mm-hmm. they are the ones actually who are responsible for telling the story and yes. the script supports their vision. Now, exactly. I don't personally love that as somebody who deals with I think I think the director supports the writer's vision. And you'll see that more in TV, actually. But in features in features, it's more the it's the other way. So that's why I'm very excited about encouraging, especially screenwriters to direct. Yes. And I love that you said that. This is why I love working with indie filmmakers, because I, I think if you start at the grassroots level, it makes you such a better director if you book a TV job because it is a completely different beast or if you book a studio job because I want you know I try to help uh, filmmakers get out of this mindset that you have to shoot 4k or now 8k is like the new hot thing or you have to have these super expensive cameras I want to see what you can pull off with a DSLR how can you still make it look cinematic 
with a camera that's not, you know, because let me tell you something, I've seen some crappy stuff shot on super expensive cameras because people didn't know how to use those cameras, right? Mm -hmm. So if you have the mindset of how to make your projects look cinematic, then when you get that super expensive camera and that $2 million budget, you will be able to pull it off. You will have the confidence and you will know what you're doing. And so I like starting with just kind of helping them learn tricks of the trade and think outside the box. Okay, yes, when you saw it in the movie, they had a, um, a rig and all this stuff, but how can you still do the same thing with your $5,000 budget? You may not be exactly like that, but if you can still give the field, the audience doesn't know if you rigged, uh, you know, um, I don't know, some kind of uh, C-stand on the back of your truck and made that look like it was coming down versus you spent $30,000 on this rig to give that same effect. They don't know. It's how it looks. And if, if the feeling is still conveyed through the camera, then the rest doesn't matter. So I feel like if you start on those grassroots levels, it will make you so much better when you have 30 people doing all these things for you that you and your cousin and your best friend did on your own. You know what I mean? Yes, yes, <laughs> I do. So um, I, have, I have all these questions in my head and I, I keep sort of bouncing around to them, but I, I think it, it sort of goes back to story. I'm interested, since you are telling stories on a really micro level, sometimes with commercials, and a macro level with um, features or or documentaries, um, do you have sort of a storytelling structure in your head for different kinds of content that you suggest and do you work with a writer or are you also part of sort of writing out the, the story of the, of the moment? Sure. Yeah, for me, I wouldn't say that I really have a process other than I really try to go for the heart. Mm. Because if you go for the heart, then you will draw people in no matter what it is. So a lot of times, yes, I write my clients content. Sometimes they write it themselves, but then I go back and I become the editor because <laughs> I'll, you know, they'll write all these great things, but what is the heart of it? What are we trying to say here? How can we pull at those heartstrings a little bit to get them to donate money to your organization or to get them to want to learn more about your services? How are you feeling a need? Right. So most of the time, I'm always looking for the heart in something and then kind of um, constructing it from there. That's probably yeah, that would be my main process, I would say. I'm going to ask you about um, a a project that is dear to you, and that is uh, the documentary that you just finished. Mm-hmm. Um, the Silent Killer, Prostate Cancer in the African-American Community. Mm-hmm. Um, so you directed it. Is that mm-hmm. right? I wrote, directed, and produced. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> oh, my goodness. And it was a documentary. How long did it take to do? So actually, we completed it in 2017, but we've still been traveling with it um, because it's become bigger than a movie now. Um, but it took me six years to do it. Wow. It took six years. Yeah. Now, now you, do you count that as starting with the fundraising process or was no. it six years yeah. of shooting? Six years of shooting. Oh, my yeah. God. And that was mainly because we did it by ourselves. Um, and when I started, I didn't know what I was doing. You could, I mean, it's funny when I look at the footage 
that we shot in 2012 and the footage that we shot in 2017. Cause of course, you know, I want to redo all the footage I shot in 2012. <laughs> sure. Sure. Um, but uh, yeah. And you know what, for that type of, of filmmaking, I'm glad it took us that long because we followed four men at different stages of prostate cancer. And so that allowed us to really tell their stories because we would go back and, and talk to them. Um, and you could see the progression. You could see who was doing better. We actually lost one of the men. Um, so I'm I'm really glad that it took six years because we needed that time. Of course, during that process, I wasn't glad. I was highly irritated that we didn't. <laughs> <laughs> but looking back in retrospect, it needed to take that time. Did we you have the story of this in your head, sort of maybe what the progression of the story would be? before you started or were you discovering that along the way? Kind of both. So uh, I did an outline of what I wanted. So basically how how we did it is uh, we had a host, we had an an actor um, go with us and interview all these men and scientists and doctors and medical professionals. And we traveled around the U.S. um, talking about prostate cancer and we held uh, roundtable discussions with men in different states. And so all of the actors uh, to camera stuff, and a lot of his questions I wrote. And then I had an outline of how I wanted it to go. What I learned with documentaries is it has a beast of, it's a beast of its own. Like someone will say something and you're like, oh my God, I didn't think of that, but we need to pursue that because most men are going to be drawn to that. Or uh, like, for instance, we have this whole segment in the movie about religion and how faith without works is dead because we have a lot of African-American men who believe, well, I go to church and God will heal me. And so therefore I don't need to go to the doctor. And so it wasn't even an avenue I thought I needed to address, right? Until we interviewed this pastor and he just went in depth about it. And I was like, oh my God, we have to include this. So we ended up having a roundtable discussion with all these big time ministers in Texas And they just broke it down because a lot of, even some of the ministers had died prostate cancer because they refused to be treated because they felt like they would be healed. Almost like what we're dealing with with COVID. Right. Right. I was just thinking about that. Yeah. Yeah. So I hadn't thought of including that segment, but so you have to not be so tied to whatever your concept is with documentaries because they'll definitely take a life of their own. And you want to have that freedom to explore it. But it, it was a lot. We shot over 60 hours of footage that I had to get down to an hour and a half. <laughs> yeah, that was difficult, but it was an awesome process. And, and at, as you're doing this, you're not going, oh, but this will be a blockbuster that will get me millions of dollars because you're like, it's a documentary, right? So yeah. fortunately, as you said, it's taken on a life of its own since Tell, talk about that a little bit. What's happening sure. with the project? Sure. So, yes, I learned, well, one, not only are documentaries not moneymakers, but prostate cancer is not a sexy topic. Mm-hmm. So, therefore, you know, I had this vision of we would have these screenings and it would be packed with all these men and we'd be saving lives. And the first couple screenings, it was maybe like five people and two of them, three of them were drugged by their wives and then I knew and they were just coming to help me. And I I mean, I was devastated because we had a theater of 300. 
Wow. And we had, and so I realized, I quickly realized that I needed help. And so I definitely, anyone who's working on a documentary, I would definitely say, if, especially if it's something in the health realm or, or um, abuse or mental illness, look for nonprofits to partner with. Because I then decided, okay, I need help with this. And so I started reaching out to every prostate cancer nonprofit I could find, um, seeing if, if they wanted to give money, if they wanted to hold a screening, if they wanted to do some a men's health fair, what could I do? And that opened the door to so much help. Um, we ended up partnering with Zero, the end of prostate cancer, and they helped us take the film on a national level. We got to screen it for the Congressional Black Caucus. Wow. We've got to screen it um, uh, Texas, DC, uh, Atlanta, Peoria, Illinois. We've been at symposiums. We've talked to medical professionals and educated them because a lot of them didn't understand why African Americans are hesitant to go to the doctor in the first place because they didn't know about um, Henrietta Lack or the Tuskegee experiment and how that um, has affected people. So it was, I, it, it just, you know, it just has been amazing and how many lives we have touched. You know, I actually had a man come up to me and told me he was thinking of ending his life because he had stage four prostate cancer. And of course I freaked out, <laughs> Sure, but, but we were able to get him help and he stayed at to the screening and he watched the movie and he said, thank you, because I thought I was the only one dealing with this like this in his area. He just didn't have the resources. So now I always try to make sure that there's a medical professional, that I'm leaving them with resources, um, you know, and it's just become this thing now. And I've been bringing uh, nonprofits and community leaders together so that they because a lot of them were like, I don't know how to reach these people who are struggling with prostate cancer, which sounds crazy, but it's actually a problem. So we've been doing that throughout the United States, and I'm actually working with Clark Atlanta and Zero to kind of bring that to the Atlanta community. So I was like, I'm just a little filmmaker. How did I become this advocate? <laughs> but it's really been a blessing, and I feel fortunate that, you know, when they ask, can a movie change a life? It really, truly can. So if you have that documentary or if there's something that's on your heart that you need to do, it may not bring you financial gain or, you know, superstardom, but it could definitely open doors for you that you could never imagine. Oh, my goodness. Now, are you working on a new pet project? I mean, with all the work that you get through your company I'm, mm -hmm. and, you know, helping other people um, and working with other people. I don't know if you have a lot of room for it, but is there, <laughs> is there a, an, an extra thing that's just for you that you're working on? Yes, I have a fun horror movie that I've actually, I think I was, it, I took Pilar's, I highly recommend Pilar's class for all of you guys who are listening. <laughs> Yay. Pilar is awesome. <laughs> um, I actually just finished it. Um, and so I'm looking forward to start producing that. Um, and then I actually am adapting a book of one of my clients. So I'm still in the beginning phases of, of that. But yeah, oh, that, that's those wonderful. are fun things. You know, it's like after doing cancer, I was like, I really have to do some something zombie or romantic. <laughs> are, there, are those your guilty pleasures, zombie movies and romances? Yeah. 
<laughs> Definitely. <laughs> what's uh, What's your favorite? What, yeah, um, uh, you know, actually, I ask a lot of people this, like, what are the movies that influence them? But as do you have a favorite low budget movie that you ever watch yeah. and study? You know that you know, and it could still be a genre movie. I mean, low budget horror. That's true. That's a good. I watch so much, so many movies. Um, it's hard for me to just pick one that's a low budget. I tend to like darker stuff, in all honesty. Mm-hmm. And it's funny because I'm a very happy, bubbly person. But I love like Seven, Fatal Attraction. Um, oh, Fatal Attraction uh, was so good, wasn't it? Glenn Close was just so delicious in that movie. Oh my god. I, uh. Yes, yes. I love her in that movie. Um, I can't think of an indie movie off the top of my I'll watch a lot of indie movies, but I can't. But you know what's interesting? Both of those movies have real indie sensibilities. That's true. You could make both of those movies on a really low budget. They just happen to have really the the big A-list actors of their time. But, you know, take that away and you look at the look of it and like, you know, Fatal Attraction was fairly contained, mm-hmm. you know, um, right. same thing with seven, you know, they'd be in these, like, it was all the money would all go into the effects of yes. the kills. Right. You know, seven was, was the first date my husband and I ever went on. <laughs> really? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And the thing was, I had read that script for like, I, I was, um, working for Amblin at the time. And I was also cheating on Amblin with several other production companies because I was freelance, so I could I could read as much as I wanted for whoever I wanted, right? And uh, and Seven was a big script that that had come out, right? So I was reading it over and over for for all wow. these, you know. And sometimes I'd steal my own coverage and stuff like that. But also Seven, you know, you have to really track the drafts because sometimes you're getting a different draft or whatever. Right. You, you don't want to be right. caught on that and stuff. So I was absolutely pretty um done with seven by the time my husband was like let's go to this movie it's called seven and and he was like it'll be scary i can hold your hand and i was like trust me you know it's not that kind of a movie you're not not (laughs) but the fact that we got through it you know it's like well i guess that's a bit of a test you know like you know and then afterwards we had ice cream don't ask me why I love it. I love it. You know, it's funny because I love horror and stuff, but I'm not good at watching horror by myself because then I'm scared. I'm at home scared. Like even working on my own horror movie, I was doing all this research and then uh, my significant other was out of town. And so he called me and said, oh, I'm on my way back. But he was flying out of, um, from out of state, I mean, out of the country. And so he got stuck in customs. So I watched Heredity. <gasps> oh, Hereditary? <laughs> Hereditary, Oh, right. my God. I watched Hereditary thinking, <sighs> oh, he'll be home soon. And then he's like, I'm stuck in customs. And I was like, why did I watch this movie? I couldn't sleep. I could swear there was something in the corner of the bedroom. The corner <laughs> of the bedroom, right? So I watched it recently, too. And I thought, yeah, this isn't so bad. This is, oh, holy, right? And now I cannot, at night, I'm always checking the, the ceilings. <laughs> always checking the ceilings. Yes. 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 But that's a sign of a, a really good horror movie, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. That it, that it, exactly. the horror is so unexpected when we spend all of our time sort of preparing for the scare, like, oh, it's coming, it's coming, it's coming. So right. the way, if it can just sort of slip, slip one, 
Anya, yep. <laughs> you're yep. like, oh my God. Especially Sorry. if they don't cheat and use like music. Cause you know, a lot of times yes. you're scared because again, you don't realize why you're scared because the music is building, building, and then they'll do and you jump, but it's, you know what I mean? They didn't do a lot of that. They did like real scary somethings in the shadows. <laughs> I was like, oh my God, this movie is so creepy. I can't bring myself to watch it again. It was good, but yeah. Now, as a as an independent producer, we didn't talk about music. I just want to like make sure we sort of check that box. That's something that you're probably always up against, right? Because one of the most expensive things is is music rights. And anybody who thinks that they can get away with it, forget about yes. it. The music industry, they're watching. They're they're in the corners on the ceiling hanging down yes. and watching you. Yes. <laughs> like, I'm glad you said that. Yes. That is something I've had a couple clients I've had to fight about with that you know about that with who like I had a client who was a lawyer and he kept swearing oh it's fine they'll just send us a cease and desist no see you've been practicing law too long that is not how this works Mm -hmm. yep and so you know he I got him to let us use all original music for the score but he really wanted this song for his the intro of his his pilot and sure enough they shut it down and I'm like, I told you, like, I, you can't use other people's music without permission. Just like you want to be paid for your services, right? These people put their artistry into these songs and they deserve to be paid for it. So you can't just skim by or think, oh, it's just going in a film festival. Oh, I'm just going to put it on YouTube. Well, now YouTube will definitely shut you down right away. Yes. But... Go, just you can pay for a subscription on uh, on a site like Epidemic Sound, and uh, for like twenty dollars a month, you can have royalty free music for your projects. And you're supporting you know, just, you're supporting new musicians, right? You're supporting other artists, or find a musician you like, and and if they're wanting to learn how to score, or you know, you guys are learning together, and you hold on to that person, and as you grow, they will score all your stuff. That's what I did. My significant other scores all my projects. When we first met, we were in a band together. I used to sing. And I knew he was a musician and he knew I was into filmmaking. And he said, you know, I've always wanted to score. But he had this secret website with a password with all these different genres of music he had created. But he was too shy to, like, try it out. So I was like, hey, well, I'm doing this movie on Can't Pretend about domestic violence. Could you score it. And that was like a silent movie. Everything depended on the music. There's no dialogue in the whole movie. So it was a test to see if he could do it. But since then, I mean, it was fabulous. We got into film festivals and stuff. And so since then, now he scores all my stuff and a lot of my client stuff too. I'll refer him. But that partnership started from he wanted to learn and I was learning. So as I like to say, we forced gumped our way through it together. <laughs> that is so romantic. That is much more romantic than seven and ice cream. Oh, I love that. I love that. That is fantastic. Thank you. Thank you. You have been so helpful. I, th- I hope that every and anybody who's thinking a little bit about sticking their toe in the water with with some indie filmmaking, even if it's really, really short, listens to this podcast, takes some notes. Excellent, excellent advice. Thank you so much, Londi. I appreciate it. 
Thanks for having me. I appreciate being here. <laughs> Now, I want to make sure people can get their eyeballs on the stuff that you do and what you want them to watch. So first of all, um, when it comes to your production company, um, are you hireable at Blue Child Entertainment? Yes. So at Blue Child Entertainment, um, if you go to bluechildentertainment.com, you can always hire us for video production, um, whatever your needs are. We actually just added COVID compliance officers. So if you need a COVID compliance officer, we also provide those now. Wow. Um, and then we just launched Blue Child Academy. So if you're wanting to learn about directing, um, if you need some assistance and help or anything like that, we're offering classes and workshops now to help first-time directors and, or people who maybe are feeling a little rusty. We, are, we actually get a lot of people who went to film school but haven't done anything or maybe they're starting over, you know, they're vintage, not older, but vintage. I like that. I they're like coming that. back. Sure. <laughs> they're coming back to this dream career. We, we're here to, to help them through that. Excellent. Excellent. And then as far as your, your documentary goes, uh, The Silent Killer, Prostate Cancer in the African-American Community, is there a place people can go to watch it or to ask you to bring it to them, maybe for their organization? Sure. You can go to thesilentkillerdoc.com. That's Silent Killer, D is in David, O is in Oscar, C is in cat.com. Um, we are soon going to be offering a pay-to-play on the website. Um, but we actually are doing a virtual live event with Zero in November for uh, its Men's Health Month in November. So I think you're supposed to grow your beard out for uh, Men's Health Month. <laughs> okay, I'll grow out my beard. All right. Got it. We won't tell anyway. Okay. <laughs> um, but yes, so if you go to the silentkillerdoc.com, we'll have information there about that. <laughs> One more question. One more question because um, the, uh, the organization Women of Color Filmmakers, is that mm -hmm. open to anybody? Um, you know, how do you, how do you apply? How do you get in? That kind of stuff. Sure. Yeah. So if you go to, I have all these websites, it's hilarious. So if you go to uh, womenofcolorfilmmakers.com, um, you can definitely join us and become a member. We actually run our membership through Meetup right now. But so if you look for us on Meetup, you can find us there. But if you go to our website, womenofcolorfilmmakers.com, you can definitely become a member, learn about all our services, check out our awesome guest speakers. Once a month, we try to have a guest speaker or a class or something. We often do script to screen, which is great if you are a writer. We look at studio films. We take a scene from a studio film, read that scene, and then we watch it to see what was kept, what we got rid of, all that good stuff, and how they visually told that. So we offer a lot of things like that. It doesn't matter if you're first time writer, director, producer, DP, all that good stuff. We are here for you. I love that. I love that. What a good idea. That's great. Thank <laughs> you, Londi. You are just a, a, just a walking gift to writers and filmmakers. I really Thank appreciate you. it. And um, I want to remind everybody to go to onthepage.tv. Um, the next class will be writing TV. And it is October 24th through, uh, I think, I can't remember. It's for four, it's for four weeks. I think November 17th. And um, what will it do? What will it do? Well, it will teach you how to pitch your entire series, help you form a mini Bible for that series, help you structure your pilot and get you into pages. Plus, 
in week four, Carol Kirshner comes in and talks to you all about the industry side of it, how to get staffed, how to sell, how to get representation. We do that all in four weeks, and we'd love to see you there. Thank you again to Londi. You rock. You're the best. Thank you for having me. (laughs) Thank you so much. (laughs) And thanks to all of you for listening. Have a good writing week.